Greetings and welcome to the 11th of November 2022 episode of the Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast, hosted by me, Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the gateway to New England. As always, I'm so glad that you could join us for today's show. Founded on July 18, 1640, Greenwich, Connecticut is one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. This weekly podcast show is dedicated to exploring and revealing the history of this notable and dynamic community. It's also a special place that we call home. Whether your roots go back nearly 400 years here as mine do, or even 400 seconds, somewhere in between or even beyond, whether you're here to stay or just passing through, well, we welcome you with open arms. You're a part of our history. My congratulations go to you. The Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Coming up on today's show. Well, it's Veterans Day here in Greenwich and the rest of America. To our veterans, I want to thank you so much for your service to our country. We honor you and we thank you as always. On today's Veterans Day 2022 show, I'll share with you uh, today's public events in Greenwich as well as take you back in time to what was then Armistice Day a year ago, in or a century ago, rather, in, in 1922. The late town historian William E. Finch, Jr. referred to the Gilded Age Great Estates era in the town as, quote, the flowering of Greenwich, unquote, when the word Greenwich was synonymous with the word millionaire. Now, thanks to the Junior League of Greenwich for publishing the book, The Great Estates, Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880-1930, our travel Today, back in time, will take us to perhaps the most famous of those great estates, and that would be Dunellen Hall in Round Hill. On Greenwich before 2000, we'll go back to what happened in Greenwich uh, in the year 1941. John Duran, that's a name that maybe you don't know, but I think that you should. He was the six-year-old son of John Duran of Railroad Avenue back in the early 20th century, specifically 1907, and this little boy was a celebrity. Why? Well, because he was Greenwich's youngest policeman, and I'll share details about that with you. On crime and misdemeanors a century ago, maybe Wilson assaulted John A. Taylor with a broomstick, while New York State resident Peter Bazella was hauled into court for having dealers license plates on a car, which he shouldn't have had, apparently, while driving with eight friends on the same day as the Yale-West Point football game. What happened to them? Well, I'll let you know. In November of 1907, a donkey in or in Coscob by the name of Don Quixote, the joy of John Bowles Jr.'s Children's hearts met with a tragic fate Tuesday in front of a trolley in Cascade. The headline uh, of the Greenwich News read, The Donkey's Fate, John Bull's Mule Attacks Car for Revenge. Oh my, that's rather complicated, don't you think? Well, as you can imagine, it was all unique and, yes, very complicated. And I'll explain why. 
Trockman's Greenwich Home, then and now, uh, is an illuminating article penned by, by Maggie Dummick. She's the curator of exhibitions and collections with the Greenwich Historical Society. Uh, I'm going to share that uh, with you, and her piece is associated with the recently opened Life and Art, the Greenwich Paintings of John Henry Trockman. It's an exhibition that I strongly recommend um, you seeing. Um, I'm going to have more about Discover Greenwich, Creating a Sense of Place, celebrating the ongoing anniversary of um, the 90th year anniversary, rather, of Greenwich's Historical Society. I'll have news about exhibits, activities, events, and more. My friends, you have come to the right place to learn about the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, one of America's more interesting and extraordinary communities. We'll have all this and more as history continues to unfold. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Make Site Design Associates of Greenwich, Connecticut your choice when it comes to taking your beautiful landscaped property to the next level. An award-winning landscape architecture studio since 1979, Site Design Associates places a high value on a unique multidisciplinary approach to landscape design and development that is second to none. From analysis to construction to maintenance with 35 years of experience, Site Design Associates offers services that are collaborative and visionary with each client's unique style in mind. Offices are located at 777 West Putnam Avenue in Greenwich, Connecticut. Call 203-869-6895 or go online to learn more at sitedesignassociates.com. The Long Island Sound Institute understands that a bright environmental future relies on brilliant ideas and methods. A special initiative by Site Design Associates, LISI is a community of diverse professionals, researchers, academics, and concerned citizens, harnessing the powers of imagination and innovation to achieve the ecological balance and conservation of Long Island Sound for present and future generations. It aims to use modern planning and the implementation of new technologies to conserve Long Island Sound, looking forward to a bright future of effective leadership. To learn more about the Long Island Sound Institute, go online to lisistudy.info or call 203-869-8632. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is a tribute to those Americans who served the nation on the international scene as ambassadors in the American diplomatic corps. There has never been a museum specifically dedicated to ambassadors. The museum's founders and supporters are committed to achieving its educational mission with programs and events for high school and college students. My friends, you can learn more by contacting the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, by calling 203-869-8632, right to Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831, or go online at amusa.info. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. 
My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor, his Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. From Patch.com, Greenwich, Veterans Day is today, Friday, November 11, and there are several events planned around the town to honor those who have served the country. The annual walk down Greenwich Avenue will begin at 10.30 a.m., followed by a ceremony at 11 a.m. in front of the Veterans Memorial near the Havemeyer Building. Riverside School will also hold its 22nd annual Veterans Day ceremony beginning at 9 a.m. All the elementary classes at the school are invited to participate along with a handful of volunteers, school staff, Riverside School parents, and local veterans. Principal Christopher Weiss will lead the event with traditional elements of the ceremony, including the raising of the flag, the laying of the wreath, and a participation in the Pledge of Allegiance. At the close of the ceremony, Riverside School alumni veterans who died in foreign wars will be recognized. This year, Greenwich Police Chief Jim Heavey and Greenwich Public School Superintendent Dr. Tony Jones, among others, will be present at the ceremony. Other ceremonies on Friday include the annual walk-in wreath presentation at the veteran Byram Veterans Club. Gathering for the walk will begin at 6.30 p.m. and step-off is scheduled for 7 p.m. The walk will proceed to the Byram Firehouse where a wreath presentation and ceremony will take place. Refreshments will be served at the clubhouse afterwards. And finally, the YMCA of Greenwich will hold a Veterans Pancake Breakfast from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. The event is open to all. Well, my friends, before Veterans Day was called Veterans Day, it was referred to as Armistice Day, of course, uh, following World War I. And I'd like to, uh, to read from you. This comes from the Greenwich News and Graphic, November 10, 1922. And the headline is Armistice Day, of course, and it reads as follows. Tomorrow is Armistice Day, and Governor Lake, that would be Governor Lake of Connecticut, has issued a fitting proclamation as follows. Quote, I recommend that on this day the national flag be displayed on all public buildings in the state, and I request that such a general observance of the day be had as to give evidence that its significance is fully appreciated by all people. On that day, let us as patriotic citizens commemorate with gratitude and deep respect to those valiant deeds of defenders of our country in time of peril, unquote. It is meet and f- moot and fitting that the valiant deeds of the defenders of our country should move the people to profound reflection, at least on the anniversary of the historic day that marked the end of that world struggle, that of course referring to World War I, it's little enough that they get besides the commemoration of reflection, quote-unquote, which doesn't cost dissent and entails neither effort nor sacrifice. And that comes from the Greenwich News and Graphic on Friday, November 10, 1922, a century ago. 
Well, the following comes from the Greenwich News and Graphic. Uh, This was uh, published on Friday, November 17, 1922, Um, a little, uh, well, a century ago, actually. I'd like to uh, to read this to you. This is a reprint, apparently, from the Evening World uh, newspaper, and it goes as follows. Will each succeeding Armistice Day find the nation further from the feelings with which it sent that soldier overseas to fight and die? Or will there come a turning point when all the pettiness, all the lingering poisons of partisanship and policy will have dissolved away, when the only memory that remains will be the memory of a great partisanship for a great cause, when that memory will urge the United States to a new partisan partnership, uh, which it will then view from the high plane of the of its confidence and strength rather than from the low plane of its mistrust and fears, we believe that turning point must come. We have faith in the future Armistice Day when the American people will have agreed at last, not only among themselves but with the with all the civilized world upon the greater permanent good for which the American soldier who sleeps at Arlington was sacrificed on the battlefield of France. Then, and not until then, will there be an armistice day worthy of him and of his people. And this is a reprint from the Evening World that was published in the Greenwich News and Graphic Friday, November 17, 1922. <music> Well, my friends, the year 2022 elections have come and gone. My congratulations go to all candidates uh, of uh, both parties. Uh, Whether you won or lost, it's it's a very, very hard thing to put your um, hat in the ring, so to speak, and um, to go through the motions of um, getting elected. Uh, I wanted to uh, to share with you an editorial that appeared in the Greenwich News and Graphic on Friday, November 10, 1922, exactly a century ago uh, this week. Uh, there's a part of this that uh, kind of mirrors what um, happened uh, this week on uh, on Tuesday. Uh, so I'd like to, uh, to just share this with you. This comes from Friday, November 10, 1922, on the editorial page of the Greenwich News and Graphic, uh, Friday, November 10, 1922, and it goes as follows. The elections have come and gone, leaving a trail of party devastation and political consternation behind. But, quote, amid the war of elements, the wrecks of matter and the crush of worlds, unquote, stands little old Connecticut, a trifle groggy but still in the ring, with head all bloody but unbowed, a bright particular Republican star in the beaddled firmament, her entire state ticket elected, United States Senator and all, but with pluralities shriveled and shrunken, and the loss of one congressman, popular Jim Glynn, of the glorious young fifth, which is particularly recouped by or, or in the game of a sheriff. That would be in Hartford County. The average plurality for the state ticket was slightly over 20,000. Congressman Shiler Merritt wins over Archie McNeil by 6,244 votes. The election locally was more than usually exhilarating. 
an organized movement was on to slaughter Judge Hubbard and Elkanah Mead, the Republican candidates for representatives, reputed to have been conceived and engineered by the Democratic Ladies' Aid Society to compass the election of their candidates, Dr. Griswold and Mrs. Birch. And despite the average Republican plurality of 600, they cut Judge Judge Hubbard's lead down to 98, which, like Bircurtio's wound, is, quote, not so deep as a well, nor as wide as a church door, but tis enough, twill serve, unquote. Mrs. Hartwell, Democratic candidate for state senator, too, was favored, though to a lesser extent, at the expense of Senator Matt Kennelly, who, by the way, was the sole prominent survivor of the Republican wreck in Stamford. In the country, quote, by and large, unquote, the Republican havoc was something appalling. Some of the striding Democratic gains are thus summarized. Seven new members of the United States Senate, cutting the Republican majority from 24 to 10. 75 new members of the House of Representatives, cutting the Republican majority from 170 to 20. Election of a senator from Michigan, the first the party has had in 70 years. Election of a representative from the 9th Virginia District, the first the party has had in 22 years. Election of a delegate from Hawaii, the first the party has had in the history of the territory. Election of governors in 17 of the 29 states chose choosing them this year, a gain of 11. 15 new members of the New York State Senate, giving party control by a majority of one. And then finally, 20 new members of the New York State Assembly, throwing the balance of power into the hands of the New York City delegation. And again, that comes from the Greenwich News and Graphic, dated November 10, 1922, a century ago. You're in for a pleasant surprise at Coffee for Good. Located in the 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue, behind the Second Congregational Church, Coffee for Good has quickly emerged as one of Greenwich, Connecticut's top coffee houses. Its success is driven by a never-ending commitment to quality, and inclusion. Coffee for Good shines as a unique nonprofit partnership between the Second Congregational Church and Abelis. It employs and trains people with disabilities through a self-sustaining platform so they can thrive in the community. The 1856 Solomon Mead House provides a 19th century style hip and unpretentious historical setting that evokes a setting filled with diverse people who are all inspired. Delightful staff, Super-friendly baristas, great coffee, pastries, and more. Coffee for Good provides free Wi-Fi, free parking, indoor and outdoor seating, with a relaxed local vibe that has become a popular study spot and destination for informal business meetings and gatherings. My friends, take it from me. The word about this gem has gotten around. Located in the historic 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue in Greenwich, behind the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill Historic District and listed on the National Register of Historic Places, Coffee for Good is open daily. 
8 a.m. to 5 p.m. except Sundays. You can learn more at coffeeforgood.org. As an accompaniment to the exhibit, Life and Art, the Greenwich Paintings of John Henry Twachman, and in the tradition of Koskob Art Colony artists, John Henry Twachman, Theodore Robinson, Child Hassam, and J. Alden Weir, all American Impressionists inspired by Bush Holly House and its surroundings, the Greenwich Historical Society is offering a plain air painting class on Saturday, November 12, 2022. That's tomorrow. This class will offer students individualized training in Impressionist painting by teaching artist Dimitri Wright and will be held on the grounds of the Historical Society. In addition to art instruction, the program will begin with a brief welcome in the Exhibition Gallery from Curator of Collections and Exhibitions, Maggie Dimmock. The theme, Retracing Twachman's Footsteps, Painting in Plain Air in Kaskab, will focus on recapturing the spirit of the Kaskab art colony, the cradle of American Impressionism. Participants will then have the opportunity to actively engage in the technique and practice of the School of Impressionism through creation of their own artwork and relive the experience of the first Impressionist artists who were inspired by this historic landscape. Instructor Dimitri Wright walks in the footsteps of a long line of American Impressionists. His mentor, Samuel Brecher, studied under Charles W. Hawthorne, founder of the Cape Cod Art School and a student of artist William Merritt Chase. Wright studied under Reuben Tam as a Max Beckham International Scholar at the Brooklyn Museum and, while attending Cooper Union, studied under Wolf Kahn and Will Barnett. As a master artist, Wright was the first artist-in-residence at the Greenwich Historical Society. He is currently the Master Artist Instructor at Weir Farm National Historic Site for American Impressionists and teaches Impressionism at the Silvermine Art School. Wright's work embodies the representational method of integrating the Impressionist and Expressionist schools with an influence rooted in classic art. Students will be required to supply their own materials and refreshments. Suggested materials include a portable easel, canvas, and medium of choice, including watercolor, acrylics, and oils. My friends, again, this is scheduled for Saturday, November 12th, 2022. That's tomorrow. It begins at 10 a.m. If you're a member of the Greenwich Historical Society, the price is $125. Non-members, $160. To learn more about this activity, please go to GreenwichHistory.org. We're very indebted to Maggie Demick, the curator of exhibitions and collections for the following article that was published in the current fall 2022 edition of the Greenwich Historical Society's newsletter. I've decided that uh, to... Um, uh, to share this with you on the podcast. It's very, very nicely done. And this is an exhibition about John Henry Twachman um, and his art at his home on Round Hill Road that we have been anticipating for a long time. We're very, very glad that it is finally going to happen. And so, um, if I may, I would like to share this with you. 
Uh, again, all of this is by Maggie Dimmock. She is the curator of exhibitions and collections at the Greenwich Historical Society. In 1889, painter John Henry Twachman, having recently secured a teaching position at New York's Art Students League, visited Greenwich in search of a home for his growing family. The artist and his seven-year-old son, J. Alden Twachman, were about two miles outside of town when they came upon a farm through which flowed a lively stream called Horseneck Brook. As later related by his son, the elder Twachman is said to have thrown up his arms in delight as he shouted, quote, This is it! Unquote. Well, who can blame him? <laughs> the paintings of, of Twachman made of his Greenwich home and surrounding property, which eventually encompassed 17 acres, are the subject of the Greenwich Historical Society's upcoming exhibition, Life and Art, the Greenwich Paintings of John Henry Twachman. The artist's house appears today much as it did in Twachman's time, although the surrounding acreage has long since been divided. Its state of preservation provides invaluable insight for modern art historians, including Lisa N. Peters, Ph.D., who curated the exhibition. Peters made her first visit to the Twachman House in the late 1980s when she began working on the Twachman Catalogue Raisonné, a project begun at Spanierman Callery. In 2021, the John Henry Twachman Catalogue Raisonné was published digitally by the Greenwich Historical Society. And by the way, it is available at jhtwachman.org. Peters made many visits to the house over the years, often conferring with the present-day owner whose knowledge of the house's history and familiarity with its setting and surroundings always provided invaluable insight. Twachman did not date his paintings after 1883 and assigned titles inconsistently, making it difficult to identify his work. The house and its surroundings, therefore, have been a vital primary resource for understanding his life in Auvergne. From 1890 to 1899, while Twachman lived there with his wife Martha and their children, five of whom survived to adulthood, the house and its surroundings became the painter's primary artistic subject. When not painting or teaching, Twachman spent his time expanding and improving the house according to his own vision. His efforts also extended to the natural surroundings where he erected terraced stone walls and cultivated lush floral and vegetable gardens. In the course of preparing for the exhibition Life and Art, the house's story was unfurled in greater detail than ever before. In 2019, Peters worked with architectural historian James Sexton, Ph.D., to establish the most definitive dating scheme of the structure to date, enabling a team of collaborators that included exhibition consultant Susan G. Larkin, Ph.D., Davida Strachbein, and Greenwich Historical Society staff to assign probable dates to several Twachman canvases with greater certainty. A set of measured architectural drawings of the house were prepared by Charles Hilton Architects, and architectural draftsman Travis Olson created detailed illustrations demonstrating the phases of the house's expansion under Twachman's supervision between 1890 and 1895. Glimpses of the house Twachman once called home are immortalized in the artworks on view this fall 
at the Greenwich Historical Society. More than just a record of a place, these paintings, drawings, and pastels invite viewers to step back in time and into the private world of one of the most original American artists of his generation. And that, my friends, is an article from the current edition of the Greenwich Historical Society newsletter. This is by Maggie Dimmock, the curator of exhibitions and collections of the Greenwich Historical Society. To learn more, please go online to Greenwich History. .org. You are listening to the Greenwich in Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich in Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, Landscape Architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. Well, my friends, it's that time in the show to step back uh, to Greenwich, Connecticut's Great Estates era, which uh, was from 1880 to 1930. Um, and uh, my good friend, the late town historian William E. Finch Jr., referred to this period um, as the flowering of Greenwich, an age when the word Greenwich became synonymous with the word millionaire. You know, the Junior League of Greenwich has done so many impressive and amazing things for the people of the town of Greenwich. Um, and one of those invaluable projects was the research and publication of The Great Estates, Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880 to 1930 book. It is richly illustrated. It has a wealth of details and you can borrow it from the Greenwich Library System. Uh, you might also be able to purchase copies of this book at the Greenwich Historical Society's museum shop. Uh, you can go to greenwichhistory.org uh, to learn more about how you can purchase it there. And on today's show, I'd like to take you back in time to a great estate. Um, I actually grew up around the corner from this place in Round Hill. And for those of us that uh, grew up um, in that area of town in the back country, um, you will know it well. It is called Donellan Hall. Um, it's on Round Hill Road at the um, intersection with Close Road. And um, the principal owner of this, uh, this great estate was Rhea Reed Topping. The architect was William B. Tubby, and its construction date was 1916 to 1918. Rising two and a half magnificent stories on one of the highest hills in Fairfield County, the brick walls of the Topping Mansion continue, uh, dominate the rolling countryside, possibly the most famous and certainly the best documented estate in Greenwich. This extraordinary creation was designed in 1916 by William B. Tubby for Daniel Gray Reed, financier and president of the American Tin Plate Company. Reed, known as the Tin Plate King, commissioned the work as a present for his only child, Rhea, who lived from 1886 to 1947, who in 1910 had married Henry J. Topping, the son of Reed's friend and associate, John A. Topping, president of Republic Steel. The mansion was completed in 1918 at the cost of $1 million. 
William Tubby was well known in architectural circles. His designs, which ranged from American colonial to classical, exhibited the eclecticism of the period and included substantial country estates, schools, hospitals, and the Greenwich Library. His outstanding work, however, remains the spectacular Jacobean manor in backcountry Greenwich, a gift only a king could give. Built originally on a mere 40 acres, the 28-room mansion faces east, providing a panorama of Long Island Sound from both front and rear. The approach is a sweep of white gravel drive outlining an oval of green lawn which is centered by a reflecting pool and fountain. The heavily carved oak entrance door is topped by a great limestone pediment in the Roman style. The walls, laid in Flemish bond and 18 inches thick, are decorated with gables and two-story bay windows and stand up past the eaves of the red-tiled roof to end in crenellations above both east and west facades. The steeply pitched roof is studded with eight towering double-stacked chimneys, each fitted in a different design of molded terracotta. The effect is truly baronial. The vestibule opens into an awesome 47-foot hall whose travertine marble floors and limestone walls lead to a porch and the terrace beyond. An 86-foot gallery crosses this hall at right angles, stretching from the kitchen wing on the south to the alcove at the north and where an Aeolian parp organ once stood. The palatial dimensions are continued in the 45-foot living room, whose teak floors are surrounded by walls covered with yellow silk brocade. A pair of French doors opens to a porch at the far end of this room, and in the center of the west wall, there is an imposing fireplace with a 10-foot opening. The ornate mantle is supported on either side by a pair of ionic columns topped by elaborate entablatures. The overmantel consists of double panels, each carved with an estuchion. The oak-paneled library is entered from the living room as well as from the entrance hall and is also teak-floored. A 15th-century carved stone mantel highlights this room, and the great bay windows fill it with afternoon sun. A full-length portrait of the topping's first two sons, Henry J. and Daniel, once hung above the mantel. An archway of vaulted stone opens from the entrance hall into the dining room, where the travertine marble floor once held an 18-foot table and a matching sideboard of equal length. Here, a carved wooden mantel graces the eight-foot fireplace, and another set of bay windows sends light to reflect on the carved oaked walls. A breakfast room, also mantel or marble-floored, opens from the dining room. A 20-foot square smoking room with a fireplace and an adjoining surface bar lies opposite the breakfast room. 
The bay windows in this room are identical in size to those in the library. Small alcoves on either side of the windows hold statuary. This room and the breakfast room are the only rooms on the first floor without paneled walls or molded plaster ceilings. A butler's pantry, complete with silver vault, leads from behind the breakfast room to the capacious kitchen where the walk-in butcher's block once stored full sides of beef. Beyond are the servants' dining room and the laundry. Two hundred feet of flagstone terrace border the west side of the mansion outside the living room, the library, and the dining room and breakfast rooms. As one leans against the stone balustrade of this terrace, one looks across rolling fields and towering treetops to magnificent views of Long Island Sound. The grand staircase whose marble steps and ornamental wrought iron railing sweep up from the center of the entrance hall divides into the double landing on the wide corridor of the second floor. Here, the entire north wing is given to the master suite, consisting of a spacious bedroom, a dressing room, and two baths. Both the master bedroom and the dressing room have fireplaces with carved marble mantles. The larger bath, which was once Mr. Topping's study, has been refinished by a later owner with shining pink onyx. There are six family bedrooms, four with fireplaces and six baths. The three bedrooms on the east side are connected by a small hall, making it possible to enter one from another without going into the center hall. On the other side, the two bedrooms south of the stairs may be turned into a suite by means of another small hallway. Beyond these rooms are a sewing room and the back stairway. The servants' quarters on the south wing complete the second floor and include seven bedrooms and two baths. There are two more bedrooms and a bath on the third floor, as well as a cement-floored handball court. Reed spared no cost on his daughter's mansion, and she lovingly named it Dunellen Hall for her mother, Ella Dunn. Tubby filled his assignment with the finest of materials, incorporating perfection in every detail. Built of steel and reinforced concrete, the 23,000 square foot of living space are virtually fireproof. Rhea Reed Topping added four parcels of land to the estate, and by 1927 it totaled 208 acres, 20 of which included a lake stocked with perch and black bass. There were a stable for riding and carriage horses, and um, an eight car garage, a swimming pool, a tennis court, a greenhouse, and a 17th century marble pavilion imported from Italy in the formal gardens. Like many of the country manors of the period, the Topping Estate was also a working farm, providing most of the produce and dairy products required by the family and their retainers. There were a vegetable garden, potato and cornfields, two barns and a silo. A herd of registered Guernsey cows gave milk and the cream from which butter was made. Chickens supplied eggs, and pigs supplied meat. During the winters, when the Topping family moved into New York City, boxes full of their farm products 
would be put aboard the baggage car of the 815 train out of Greenwich, which was met by one of the family's chauffeurs at Grand Central Station. Twenty-three servants lived in the main house, and seven families were housed on the estate. The two chauffeurs each had their own apartments at either end of the garage. The head gardener and the coachman lived above the stables. There were separate cottages for the farmer, the dairyman, the engineer who was responsible for the machinery that ran the ice plant, and pumps for the two wells. It was an enormous complex, nearly self-sufficient, and was impeccably maintained as a world of its own. Rhea Reed was born on July 8, 1886, in Richmond, Indiana, and moved to New York City with her father and his second wife in 1898. After their marriage, Rhea and Henry Topping lived in a large country home in Portchester, New York, and in 1916, Daniel Reed deeded his handsome six-story residence in Fifth Avenue to his daughter, the same year that he engaged William Tubby to design Dunnellan Hall. The Toppings had three sons. Daniel Reed was born in 1912, Henry J. Jr. in 1914, and John Reed in 1921. They lived quietly with little involvement in community affairs. They belonged to the Round Hill Club and Henry Topping, a dapper man and class of 1907 at Princeton University, was an avid golfer. In 1923, he won the Connecticut State Championship. His one venture into the business world, a half-hearted promotion of golf clubs, ended in failure. Rhea Reed Topping, on the other hand, inherited her father's business acumen and spent much of her time in her New York City office overseeing the management of her vast wealth. In 1926, she took over the guardianship of her son's trust fund, which their grandfather, Reed, had set up in 1919. Daniel Reed died on January 1, 1925. In 1929, six months before the stock market crash, she sold the Fifth Avenue house at a substantial profit and bought an apartment in the city. The family lived in New York during most of World War II when rationing made it impossible to heat adequately the Greenwich estate. The mansion and its outbuildings required 23,000 gallons of oil and two carloads of coal annually. Although Rhea and Henry Topping took little advantage of the entertainment possibilities of Denellen Hall, their sons did, and they gave it a reputation as the scene of lavish parties. The young Toppings also provided the press with extravagant copy through their numerous marriages. Dan, at one time co-owner of the New York Yankees, had five wives, the most famous of whom were actress Arlene Judge and Sonia Henney, the champion ice skater. Henry Jr., who was called Bob, had four wives, one of whom was Lana Turner. He also married Arlene Judge ten years after her wedding to his brother. Jack was the only son to remain with his first wife. His mother willed him all the silver, china, glass, and books from her estate and also gave him 70 acres of her Greenwich land in July 1947, three months before her death. 
Rhea Topping died of pneumonia on November 2, 1947, at Lenox Hill Hospital in New York City. She left $250,000 to each of her sons as well as equal shares of her residual estate, $35,000 to her husband, and bequests to each of her servants and secretaries. Henry Topping died in Clearwater, Florida in 1951. Donellen Hall was sold for the first time in 1950 and for the ninth time in 1984. Through the years, the ivy continued to creep up the walls while the acreage shrank from subdivision, bringing considerable income to local brokers. A 5,000-bottle wine cellar was installed in the basement and an Olympic-sized swimming pool was added below the terrace. An English-style pub adjoins the game room, smoking room, and air conditioning and indirect lighting have updated the utilities. There are now more than 100 wall outlets in the gallery alone to eliminate individual works of art. It has been suggested that the mansion be converted to a museum, which might be a viable alternative to the constant turnover of owners and the escalation of upkeep and taxes. Yet, despite the alterations made to the interior, the Nellon Hall remains a stunning example of architecture in the grand manner and a reminder of the gracious living that flourished in the United States in the period between the two world wars. Well, as we continue to observe and celebrate the 125th anniversary of the founding of the Greenwich Police Department, I thought that I would share this rather um, interesting uh, story that I think will bring a smile to, uh, to many of you. It was published in the Greenwich News on Friday, November 8th, 1907, and its title or the headline reads, Youngest Policeman. Master Doran pa- patrols Railroad Avenue, though only six... <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we go. John Duran, the six-year-old son of John Duran of Railroad Avenue, attracted a deal of attention in the town hall one day last week. He was clad from head to foot in a complete policeman's uniform, Billy and all. As he paced up and down at the side of Officer James Nedley, he made a very, quote-unquote, cute little defender of the law and became the center of an admiring group of town officials. The miniature patrolman takes his self-imposed duties very seriously, and with all the earnestness imaginable, he paces his beat on Railroad Avenue and warns all noisy persons to keep the peace. (laughs) Everyone is so amused and pleased by the youngster that he always meets with obedience. The young policeman takes as his model officer, James Nedley, and he often walks by his side, watching keenly everything he does and imitating him most accurately. And Mr. Nedley is so pleased at the youngster's keenness that he is always glad to instruct him in the ways of the force. The other day, a representative of the news found the two policemen together, and the picture was so good that he quickly called photographer K.O. Run who caught it with his camera so that all the readers of the news might see it too. Um, And by the way, we do have an image of uh, that uh, photograph. It's rather, um, it's not very good, but um, it's it's a reprint. 
And um, and this appeared in the November 8th, 1907 edition of the Greenwich News. That was, of course, Greenwich's youngest police officer, John Duran, who at the time was six years old. Well, my friends, it's time for Crimes and Misdemeanors. This is the part of the show in which we pause to observe that not everything was perfect and lovely and um, <laughs> and tranquil in Greenwich. Crimes were committed um, in its history, and, um, and I wanted to outline and uh, share with you uh, some of these that happened a century ago in 1922. Um, we have first a broomstick assault. Uh, Mrs. Wilson asserts herself with traditional woman's weapon. Oh my, the story goes as follows. Mrs. Mamie E. Wilson, aged 34, was arraigned before Judge James R. Meade in the Greenwich Borough Court Tuesday morning, charged with assaulting John A. Taylor, son of S.W. Taylor, editor of The Writer and Driver, who owns a large estate known as Suname Farm on the Westover Road in North Miamis, half of which is in the town of Greenwich and the other half in Stamford. Some argument arose on Sunday uh, as to the occupancy of the house owned by Mr. Taylor, in which Mrs. Wilson and her family reside, and it is alleged that Mrs. Wilson, in defending herself from the onslaught of Mr. Taylor and his son John, wielded a broom over the head of the latter, who summoned the police. Captain Patrick Flanagan placed the woman under arrest Tuesday morning. The case was continued for a week for investigation. In addition, um, let's see, taxi drivers must stop speeding on borough streets is the um, headline, and it goes as follows. Because of the numerous complaints received by the police concerning public service cars, Driven recklessly, particularly on Mason Street and Millbank Avenue, Police Chief James J. Nedley has instructed his men to be on the lookout for all such violators of the law, and as a result, Joseph J. Massey, deliver, uh, driver for the Greenwich Cab Company, was arrested by motorcycle cop Timothy Daly Monday evening. The police officer followed Massey from the offices of the CAD company on Railroad Avenue, up Greenwich Avenue, and the letter's speed averaged 31 to 32 miles an hour up the avenue. That's actually quite fast if you stop and think about it. Anyway, Mass pleaded guilty to the charge of reckless driving before Judge Meade Tuesday morning. Prosecutor White said that these taxi drivers have become overzealous in their efforts to take passengers to and from the trains, and Massey happened to be the unfortunate one who was apprehended. In order that Massey might not lose his driver's license, he recommended that the case be rolled on the payment of costs, which was granted by Judge Meade, who warned the defendant to drive more slowly in the future, as it would go hard uh, with him if he appeared before him a second time. Hmm. Let's see. We have another story here. Um, again, this was published in the Greenwich News and Graphic on November 24, 1922. This one was Bazella was operating a car with dealer's markers. For not having the proper markers on his car, Peter Bazella, a resident of New York State, was 
hauled into court Tuesday morning. He was arrested by state policeman Carroll. Bazella had purchased a secondhand car in Danbury, for which he paid the owner $100. When was the last time that ever happened? Well, never mind. On with the story. He took the machine to New York, operating the car with dealer's plates, which were on the machine at the time it was sold. Fearing it might be a stolen automobile, he made inquiries of the New York police and then started back to Danbury with eight male friends in the machine, intending to see the former owner of the car regarding the numbered plates. The state police have been conducting a campaign against automobilists, we would call them drivers today in the 21st century, operating cars in Connecticut having dealer plates having dealers' numbers, and on the day of the Yale-West Point football game, Officer Carroll apprehended Bazella and placed him under arrest. The court was inclined to believe that Bazella was out on a joyride, as the latter could give no satisfactory reason why he took so many friends to Danbury if he was simply going there on business. Bazella also the state officer following his arrest, the nearest way to Poughkeepsie, according to State Officer Carroll. Judge Mead imposed a fine of $25 and costs. And that, my friends, is Crimes and Misdemeanors. And that uh, is from crimes uh, that were published in the Greenwich News and Graphic on November 24, 1922. <music> Well, I have to admit that this is one of the more unique stories from Greenwich's 20th century history. Um, This one is um, from a story that appeared in the Greenwich News that was published on uh, November 5th, 1907. And its headline is, A Donkey's Fate, John Bowles' Mule Attacks Trolley Car for Revenge. Now, um, that is something that would, of course, um, catch, I think, anybody's eye. And I'd like to just share this with you. Follow along. Don Quixote. The joy of John John Bowles Jr.'s children's hearts met a tragic fate Tuesday in front of a trolley car at Cascab, and as a result, much trouble was brought to the employee of the company and sadness to the house of Bowles. It was unquestionably a case of animal devotion. The occurrence ought to provide Ernest Thompson Seaton, whose estate is not far from the home of Mr. Bowles, with material for another story of animal devotion. Of course, people wouldn't believe it. They never do believe them any more than the old woman who accepted without question her seafaring son's story of mountains of sugar and rivers of whiskey whiskey, would believe in flying fishes. Without doubt, it would lay him open to the charge of nature-faking, so, quote, donkey's fate, unquote, will go unchronicled save for the evanescent press accounts. But really, it was this way. Donkey, the abbreviation was so fitting that no one could resist it, among his many admiring friends, had one whom he valued above all others, that was Bob, unquote, quote unquote, Mr. Bowles, Scott, Scott Collie. They were inseparable comrades. When Ducky slept uh, at night in the stable, 
Bob cuddled close to his side in the hay. When he grazed on his own neighboring lawns, Bob was there to growl and show his teeth at all who tried to disturb his friend, and when Donkey went out to draw the children in the donkey cart, he would bound ahead in joyful leaps and herald his coming in ecstatic yelps. But last week Bob met his fate. Just how it happened, no one but Donkey knew, and he exhausted the Donkey language without being able to communicate it to Bob's human friends. He had been grazing near the trolley track at the time, and he had seen a car strike the collie, and he had seen the lifeless body of his friend lying upon the rail. What were Donkey's mental processes, no one will ever know. But from that moment, his whole bearing changed. He did not gallop about the lawn and kick up his heels or bray joyously, joyfully, rather, when he saw the children come and take him out. He grazed thoughtfully and sadly, brooding, and when he saw a trolley car, there came a wicked gleam into his great brown eyes. Clearly, he contemplated mischief to the trolley cars, if Mr. Seaton had only been there, he could have told just how, how he spoke inwardly and could have made the world weep over the thoughts which agonized his asinine mind. But he wasn't. All that is known is that early Tuesday morning, as a westbound trolley was approaching, he galloped out on the tracks and stood, braced his heels ready to meet the incoming car. Had he read the Sunday supplement of the journal and seen Maud in the act of demolishing freight cars with her heels, then imagined the same thing? If he did, he was only another jackass who suffered from believing what he saw in the Sunday papers. But, of course, it isn't known. It is known that the trolley was derailed and that Donkey's inert body was removed for internment. Mayhap he is now grazing in some Elysian field with Bob by his side, untroubled by trolley cars or by Sunday papers. But as has been remarked, it isn't known. And that, my friend is a unique story of animal devotion <laughs> that appeared in the Greenwich News, November 15th, 1907. Well, Greenwich Before 2000 was published as an updated revised edition of another Greenwich favorite history book of mine that you may know of. It's called Before and After 1776, The Comprehensive Chronology of the Town of Greenwich. Greenwich Before 2000 goes through the year 1999, and it was adopted as a project by the Greenwich Historical Society at the time, and it was made possible by the generous support and in an honor of Russell S. Reynolds, Jr., who was a descendant of the founders of the town of Greenwich, whose numerous charitable bequests have advanced the preservation of Greenwich's history for many years. The book is available at the Greenwich Library, and you can borrow it. Um, you might be able to find it at the Greenwich Historical Society's gift store if you wanted to, um, to purchase this. Uh, this. On this day, I'm going to share with you what happened in Greenwich in the year 1941. 
On January 21st of that year, airplane observation posts at the Sandwich Road Silo, Riversville Road Tower, and the Town Hall Tower began four-day, 24-hour tests with Mitchell Field Long Island planes on practice operations. On the 16th of January, the drive to raise $1 million for a new Greenwich Hospital was successful. On January 30th, a Central Volunteer Bureau is organized and boasts 3,000 ready volunteers. Also in the month of January, the boarding house called the Elms at the corner of East Putnam and Mar Avenues was de- demolished. On January 30th uh, of 1941, the Board of Selectmen advocates a reduction in membership of the RTM representative town meeting, stating that, quote, the large membership is unwieldy and slow, unquote. On February 6th, the Board of Estimate uh, announces the town indebtedness, if I can say it, had been reduced to $2,888,000 by the end of 1940. On February 16th, A.U. Fox, a local citizen and former broker in the international settlement in Shanghai, says, quote, Japan's threats to the U.S. are becoming increasingly serious day by day, unquote. On May 22nd, municipal collection of garbage is advocated by a member of the Public Works Department. On June 5th, in the opinion of several oil company officials, there is no shortage of oil here and no need for panic. On June 12th of 1941, the Greenwich Police Benefit Fund is enacted. And on July 21st through the 27th, a canvas and collection of aluminum for defense purposes takes place in Greenwich. On July 17th, in spite of protests from residents, the town will make no official action against the proposed construction of a Westchester County airport on King Street. And also on that same day, the Greenwich Gas Company now has 586,664 feet of gas pipelines in service in Greenwich, a 15-year project. On July 24th, as the RTM again faces the issue of the purchase of Todd's Point, a public poll shows a 10 to 1 ratio in favor of the purchase. Also, all local gas stations will comply with the blackout between 7 p.m. and 7 a.m. On August 14, the national crisis may hold or delay several local projects, such as road paving and drainage work, according to the local press. On October 30th, in Greenwich, 61.1% of the draftees are rejected on physical examination, which is nearly twice the national percentage of rejections. In October uh, of that uh, year, 1941, an auxiliary police unit is formed to help the police. On November 6th, the chairman of the BET, that would be the Board of Estimate and Taxation, reveals in a letter to his fellow board members that he will campaign on the floor of the RTM, that would be the representative town meeting, next week for a substantial reduction in the town's tax rate. On November 13, the total budget is reduced $70,000 by the RTM, Approved is $200,000 for the purchase of Todd Point and $375,000 for a school in the Central District. 
In November 1941, the Riverside League of Women Voters changes its name to the League of Women Voters Greenwich to to reflect its broader membership. On November 4, 1941, the Chamber of Commerce favors a study of the need for a fire prevention code, and if the need is apparent, a code should be drafted. And finally, on December 11, 1941, the first selectman calls for uh, the additional air raid wardens, uh, auxiliary firemen, and Red Cross nurses' aides, and also the Kiwanis Club, with a member of fif- membership of 58, organizes to give service to the community and sponsor the Key Club at the high school. Well, my friends, before we close today's show, I would like to draw your attention to an initiative that I and some associates of mine have launched, um, and this regards a house, historic house in the backcountry of of Greenwich. It is a designated landmark by the Greenwich Historical Society, and I'm referring to the John Clapp House. Um, it's on Upper King Street. It was built in 1772, so it's one of the few 18th-century homes that is still uh, in existence um, in Greenwich, Connecticut uh, today. Um, the house attracted our attention because one of the things that I and um, my associates have been interested in uh, doing is acquiring a uh, uh, an antique home and property, and this one certainly fills the bill, if you know what I mean. And um, one of the things that we're very interested in doing is having a historic property like this uh, function as a learning center in the area of agri-science. Now, that sounds uh, rather complicated, of course, but one of the things that um, that it would do is that um, we would provide educational opportunities uh, for people to learn about agri-science. Uh, now, my understanding is that uh, Greenwich Country Day School uh, acquired French Farm on uh, Lake Avenue uh, that was um, on the National Register of Historic Places, and, uh, and and they are using the buildings there not only for faculty housing, but having an agricultural uh, science program. And um, I, it was also drawn to my attention by uh, my, my aunt, who, um, who lives in Springdale in Stamford, that West Hill High School uh, has an agri-science program for its uh, students. And um, after taking a look at it, I thought, wow, I said, you know, the John Clapp House and property on Upper King Street would be ideal, I think, for something uh, like this. So we would be teaching people about um, you know, growing organic food uh, on your um, on your property, um, about um, uh, things to do with uh, horticulture, and uh, opening this up, by the way, uh, to um, uh, a diverse population, um, everybody from uh, those with disabilities associated with uh, such organizations as uh, Abelis, uh, that has done uh, a magnificent job. Uh, with Coffee for Good at the Solomon Mead House at the Second Congregational Church, but also with um, high school students, um, junior high school students or middle school students, sorry about that, um, lifelong learners uh, in the adult population, and, uh, um, and uh, doing this in a way that is both inclusive and, um, and would help to preserve 
the uh, history, history and uh, the historic nature of this particular property. Um, I've posted a picture of this at Greenwich Town for All Seasons.blogspot.com on uh, today's show. And one of the things that we are asking the community to do is to contact us um, about joining our effort to, uh, to make this happen. You can do that by contacting me by email at Greenwich Town for All Seasons at gmail.com. Um, if you have me on Facebook, my um, uh, Facebook is Jeffrey Bingham Mead. You can talk, uh, contact me there by uh, Facebook Messenger. Um, and also the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show um, also has a presence on, um, on Facebook as well. Uh, this house is a very, very interesting one. Uh, it is a designated landmark by the Greenwich Historical Society. Some of its uh, noteworthy architectural features include the fact that it was possibly two structures, um, and um, the, the beams in, uh, in the basement are old, barked. Um, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the house has gone through uh, some changes uh, over the centuries, of, of course. The flooring, I understand, is original. I understand that the beams that make up the structure of the, of the house are, um, are original, too. It's, uh, by the way, not too far from um, Augustine's uh, farm from uh, Brunswick School's um, uh, middle school um, and Westchester County uh, Airport. And so um, this would be uh, an educational uh, forum that would reach out to um, students from uh, the private schools, the, uh, uh, the public schools, lifelong learners, um, and um, just a myriad of, um, of populations and demographics that I think would find a great deal of joy in, um, in learning about not just the history, but, uh, but about agri-science. Uh, so anyway, please, I hope that you will contact me. And, and please, we do ask you to wish us luck and success in this. And, um, and I'll keep you up to date on the things that are going on. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to the 11th of November 2022 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by me, Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. Greenwich, Connecticut was founded on July 18, 1640. It is one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. You and your Greenwich stories are a part of our history, and we are so glad to have you. The Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Kevin M. J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Our next show is scheduled for next Friday. That would be the 18th of November, 2022. Always remember that you can contact me by email at Greenwich a Town for All Seasons at gmail.com. The show is also on Facebook. You can look us up there and, um, and stay in touch with us. Uh, you can go to Greenwich and Town for All Seasons.blogspot.com to listen to not only this show, but all of our previous ones. There is no paywall, so it's all for free, and you can listen to your heart's content as many times as you wish. Again, I want to thank you very much for tuning in to today's Veterans Day 2022 show. It's been a pleasure having you, and I look forward to being with you again next week on the 18th of November. Take good care. Have a good weekend. Bye-bye now.